can I just say thank you so much for the invitation to be with you over this weekend. I've enjoyed it immensely and I've really enjoyed making new friends, uh, catching up with old friends, uh, hearing just something of the work that God is doing in your lives as individuals, as a church family, and as you look forward to uh, all sorts of opportunities and uh, that await you when you get back home. Um, I don't know what you would do if you were to try and turn Jonah into a film, uh, where uh, you would, uh, who you would cast in the leading role, how you would film it, and so on. I, I kind of wonder whether, if we were directing that film, we might just try and bring it to a close at the end of chapter three, though. Do you not think? That's where you want to end the film on a high, with uh, the Ninevites turning to God and this most amazing uh, climax and end to the film. Certainly, if you if you read through in children's Bibles their versions of the book of Jonah, it's interesting how they conclude it. So there were two on the bookstore. There was kind of the scratch and sniff version, the rather big one with uh, lots of glitter on it. And that basically brought the story to an end at chapter 3. We're told that the Ninevites repented and Jonah was amazed. End of story. There was a second little children's uh, one, a smaller one, but I actually think I did, did a remarkably good job of telling the, the whole story and gave time and attention to what I think is the most surprising chapter of the whole book, and that is chapter 4. And it's a bit of an enigma, isn't it? We sort of wonder what on earth it's doing there. So we're going to pray and ask for God's help that we might understand what it's doing there and that we might learn why the book has this little epilogue of Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 to 12, what God is trying to teach us through it. So let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you uh, that this chapter has been written by you for us. It may be a a bit of a puzzle. We may think the story would have been much nicer if it had ended earlier, but Lord, you want to teach us about your surprising grace in Jonah's response to your grace to the Ninevites. So, Lord, having already heard much over this weekend, we still ask, Lord, by your Spirit, be our teacher now. In Jesus' precious name and for his glory. Amen. Uh, So, do you remember all the way back in chapter 1, we're thinking about how grace is often surprising? And it was surprising in chapter 1 because it was quite a painful experience for Jonah. Jonah had gone on the run, and grace meant that God won't leave us in our sin. That God comes looking for us, and that God comes to bring us back to our senses, to bring us to a, a true and right repentance. But in order for God to do that, God had to send a storm. And yet the God who sent the storm also sent the fish. And grace is surprising in the way in which we might experience it. At times we might think, I don't see how this is the act of a gracious God to me. And yet that might be the very means by which he's keeping us walking humbly and closely to him. Chapter 2 is surprising grace because we we realise that uh, grace is what we need every day. To be at work in our hearts to transform us. The rediscovery of grace leads to Christian obedience and service. So grace is surprising because sometimes we think grace is the way into the Christian life, but we perhaps haven't really grasped that grace is the way on in the Christian life. That we keep having to relearn the lessons of just how extraordinary God's love has been towards us. And then in the session this morning, I think we saw how wide is the extent of God's grace. We're amazed to discover and surprised to discover that there's no one too far gone for God. 
it reaches Nineveh. And Ninevites were the extreme end of Sin City. And therefore, if God can take grace to them, then God's grace surely knows no limits. And I wonder whether we put limits in some measure on just how gracious we think God might be in the context of our friendships and work relationships everything else. Or we put limits, as we see in chapter 4, on how far we think God's grace should be. Yeah, In terms of how far we think it ought to go. Well, let's look again at uh, chapter 3 and verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. You see, far from being excited in the midst of a great revival after all, I mean, who wouldn't want to be at the hearts of a revival? How many of us dream at the thought of having lived at a previous time in church history when God was doing amazing things in our own lands? But Jonah, in the midst and in the heart of revival, is angry with God. That's our first point. Thanks. Angry with God. Chapter 4, verse 1, literally reads in the, in the original, he was angry with a great anger. Over what? Over salvation. He said, I knew it. I knew you were going to have compassion. And I don't like the fact that your grace has no limits. That's what he's really saying there in verse 2 when he's saying, you're, you're a gracious and compassionate God. Isn't it extraordinary that at the very time, chapter 3, verse 10, when God is turning away from his anger, Jonah was turning to his anger. It was a deliberate play there. God is turning away from anger. Jonah is turning to anger over the same thing. You see, it's quite possible to be amazed by grace as we have received it and yet be appalled by grace when others receive it. In Jonah's mind, no doubt, he was thinking, God shouldn't be the kind of God who will just simply forgives any kind of evil. Uh, even if they do repent. Uh, these people, after all, are the enemies of God. They will, in not, not, very, it, it, not very far into the future, they will be responsible for the destruction of the ten northern tribes of Israel. Surely Jonah is saying God ought to punish evil. Isn't God a God of justice? Shouldn't he be punishing wrong? Not merely overlooking it and forgiving it. I guess Jonah is asking that age-old question. Where is the justice in all of this? That's, that's what's giving rise to the anger, I think. Uh, he's thinking, surely God isn't just going to let them get away with all that they've done. Does Jonah see it as perhaps a weakness in God's character? Is God a bit of a soft touch? Is God a bit of a pushover? Nineveh surely has to be destroyed if we're to believe in a God of justice in the world. And I guess maybe Jonah is thinking, well, what's the point of being a believer? What's the point of having spent all of my life living faithfully to you if you can live 
a wicked life and, and just be forgiven anyway. God just forgives your sins, whatever you do, as long as you say you're sorry in the end. So there is something scandalous, isn't there, about grace? Um, we shouldn't be surprised that our, our non-Christian friends saying, what you're saying, God will just forgive if... There is something outrageous. Talk to a Muslim about the idea that God will simply choose to treat us in that way and they, they, they find it very hard to accept. And maybe Christians in another part of the world who've experienced up front the realities of opposition and persecution, injustice and even hatred towards them might share some of these feelings too. Grace doesn't always seem amazing. Sometimes it seems pretty appalling. Corrie Tamboom was sent to Ravensbrück concentration camp where her sister died. A number of years later she was in the church and the former SS man who had stood guard in the shower room door at the processing centre in the camp was in the church. It was the very first time she'd come face to face with, with any of her tormentors. He saw her and of course he knew who she was. She knew who he was. And he reached out his hand having described how he'd come to faith in Jesus. But Corrie kept her hand by her side. She said she was full of hatred for the man who had played his part in killing her sister. She said she also thought, she kind of tried to think, Jesus Christ has died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? And she prayed, Lord Jesus, help me to forgive him. But then she said, I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand and I could not. I felt nothing. Not the slightest spark of warmth and charity. She was seeing Jonah inside, wasn't she? And she goes on, so again I breathe the silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your faithfulness. And she says, as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, all along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. See, was, sorry, Jonah was stuck where Corrie was stuck. A heart that was unable to forgive the unforgivable and therefore unwilling to extend grace. And Corrie knew what to do. She needed the love of Christ, the faithfulness of Christ, to do what, humanly speaking, she could not do. But rather than pray for a heart like God, Jonah prayed something else. Chapter 4 and verse 3. He said, O Lord, take away my life. Here's a problem, I can't resolve it, I don't see the just... I don't see that this is right, but rather than saying, God, give me a heart like yours, he prayed, take away my life. Get me out of this situation this way. It's better for me to die than to live. That God is a God willing to forgive the unforgivable is too much for Jonah. He can't live with a God who's going to overlook evil, and Jonah says, therefore, I'd rather die. Now, why is Jonah's response so strong? 
well, we have some sympathy, don't we, having listened to Corrie's own story in battle with forgiving the unforgivable, that it is a scandal that the most wicked nation on the earth could be forgiven. But most importantly, what God is going to do in the rest of chapter 4 is to teach Jonah that his anger is the result of a monumental loss of perspective. He's completely lost sense of who he is before a holy God, let alone who they are. This loss of perspective is the heart to understand in chapter 4. An email one student, a university student, wrote to his parents near the end of term time went something like this, Dear Mum and Dad, Sorry you haven't heard much from me in recent months. Uh, The fact is, a few weeks ago, there was a fire in our building. Uh, I lost all my possessions. In fact, I only escaped with my life by jumping out of a second floor window. And in the event, I broke my leg and uh, I finished up in hospital. Fortunately, I've met the most wonderful nurse there. Well, it was love at first sight. And to cut a long story short, last Saturday, we got married. My friends say it was all a bit too quick. And maybe we are from very different backgrounds and speak different languages, but I'm I'm sure our love will win out in the end. New sentence. In case you're getting worried, let me put your fears to rest. Everything I have written so far in this letter is false. None of it ever happened. What did happen is that two weeks ago I failed my final exam. (coughs) And I just wanted you to get it in proper perspective. (laughs) Students take notes. You see, perspective is everything, isn't it? It's everything. Uh, When we're failing exams. But perspective is everything when it comes to God. And what we think is the God thing to do in a given situation. And our man, Jonah, is a man who in the thick of his mission to Nineveh, loses perspective. But when Jonah kicks off against God again now in chapter 4, just as he has done in chapter 1, God's surprising grace means that God is going to use his failure to teach him again. Do you remember we said God, God is at work in us when we're getting it right, and God is at work in us when we're getting it wrong, and now God is going to be at work in him now in chapter 4, because God's going to ask him some questions to try and help him, provoke him, to see the God-like response to the sins of Nineveh. See, Christianity is not a religion that allows no room for questions, struggling with God and what he's doing, what he's thinking. God is very aware of our weaknesses and difficulties in, in grasping hold of who he is. And God is patient with us. And the Psalms are full of that, aren't they? Of people grappling with the character of God and trying to understand his way in the world. That isn't the case, of course, with a, a religion like Islam. As one scholar notes, Islam is a religion of resignation. Allah made the world, and you must accept it. You are allowed no questions, no doubts, no individual responsibility. Negation of self is your salvation. But that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible allows you to enter in to conversation with him, even as you wrestle with what it means uh, for him to be Lord in the world. God is ready to deal with his wayward child here again. 
So let's look at the three questions in turn. The first one is verse 4. The Lord replied, have you any right to be angry? That's the first question, verse 4. What rights do you have, Jonah, to put limits on my grace? Uh, And after all, given who we are and what we've received, how could it ever be that we received God's undeserved love? How can we be amazed at God's grace for us and so resent it? reaching others. Well, Jonah shows our hearts. Surely only the sin of um, self-absorption and uh, utter self-centeredness twists and distorts our perspective. So we start to say, in some way, I'm different. Uh, I'm a special case, God. Well, of course you should be saving me because of this or that or the other. But then I read Romans and I read, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I think, why am I saying I'm special? What is it about me that that God should show me mercy over another? No, the, the truth is, when we ask God for something, that we are in turn not ready or willing for God to offer someone else, then we're contradicting ourselves, aren't we? If we're all sinners deserving of hell, if we've all fallen short of the glory of God, how can I ever ask for something for me that I'm unwilling to let God offer to another? That's to contradict the gospel, isn't it? It's a denial of everything I believe. Paul David Tripp says, we who proclaim the message of grace are deeply in need of grace ourselves. We've not arrived That's what you see in Jonah. The big surprise of Jonah chapter 4 is you think he's learned his lesson in chapter 2, but actually we're all learning grace all the time. He's not arrived. And Tripp goes on, we have not moved beyond a moment-by-moment need for grace. We are not yet out of danger. You and I are never out of danger of deciding in our heart of hearts we are the deserving ones. We are the ones who ought to know God's grace, and yet not others. One of the signs of God's grace in the church, and in our own individual lives, is a gospel humility. And gospel humility leads me to come to church every Sunday morning and say, why me? Why would you ever choose to save me? That's the miracle of miracles, that you've been gracious to me. And if I start to say, why me? I very quickly start to say, why not then? You see, that's the gospel humility. It says, I'm not the deserving one. The Apostle Paul shows that gospel humility consistently, doesn't he? When he, not least in 2 Timothy, describes himself as the chief of sinners. The moment you say, that's, that's who I am, the chief of sinners, then God's grace is available to everyone. Because there's no one less deserving than me. And Jonah just can't see that here. He's still got his categories. Deserving, undeserving. So the God who gave the storm and the God who gave the fish, verse 6, this time gives a vine to teach Jonah. I guess it looks as if Jonah has preached to the Ninevites. They've turned to the Lord and Jonah's retreated onto a hillside and he's going to sit it out for 40 days and just watch and wait and see actually what happens. 
He's got time on his hands. He's got no home to call his own. And so he builds this little tent or shelter. And the plant is God's provision of shade for him. And we read verse 6. Jonah was very happy about the plant. Here's the man of God. Remember, he's angry enough to die because God is saving the wrong people from hell. But who still has the emotional capacity to be full of joy because God has given him an umbrella. Do you see the loss of perspective that's at work in his heart? That's a serious loss of perspective, isn't it? Nineveh's salvation could not make Jonah happy. What could? A son had. And what God's action reveals about Jonah's heart is that personal comfort was Jonah's highest goal and is what gave him joy in life and pleasure. Let me ask you, what causes you to rejoice with a great joy? A new pair of shoes? The football team winning for the first time in a while? You know that you're getting a right perspective again on your life when your greatest joy is the salvation of sinners. The greatest joy. The angels in heaven rejoice over the salvation of sinners, and so should you and I. And the problem is we're more like Jonah because what gives us greatest joy is our personal comfort. And Jonah's self-centeredness makes him pretty miserable and renders him useless too. Sitting outside the city, having his little stroppy sulk, waiting to see what's going to happen, he was a spectator when where should he have been? He should have been leading the church in Nineveh. All of these people turning to God, not, not one of them knew a thing. He ought to have been discipling and preaching and training and building the church. And instead he's out of town waiting to see this judgment must surely come, really, no matter how, much, how sorry they are. See, grace, when we rediscover it and it lives, has the ability to set us free from personal pleasure as the highest goal in life to serving the living God and longing to see others saved through that work. Adoniram Judson was a man who had such a heart. And he longed to get the message of Jesus to the Far East. And in June of 1812, on the same day that he presented himself to his missionary board to serve overseas, he met Anne. And he was smitten. The problem was he loved Anne, and yet he longed to serve God. So he asked her father whether he would consent to allow her to be a missionary wife. And he wanted his fa- her father to be sure he knew exactly what that meant. So this is the letter Adoniram Judson wrote to Anne's father. He said, I now have to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of the missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress 
to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this? For the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? Can you consent to all of this for the sake of the perishing, immortal souls? For the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory, with the crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praises, which shall redound to her Saviour, from heathens saved, through her means, from eternal woe and despair. Wow. That's a letter to write, isn't it? And it's a letter to receive. Mr. Hasseltine, Anne's father, let his daughter make the decision. She wrote in a letter to her friend Lydia Kimball of her decision. And she said this, I feel willing and expect, if nothing in providence prevents, to spend my days in this world in heathen lands. Yes, Lydia, I have about come to the determination to give up all my comforts and enjoyments here. Sacrifice my affections to relatives and friends and go where God in his providence shall see fit to place me. See, what might we be ready to give up when personal happiness is replaced by eternal joy and the thought of people coming to faith in Jesus from across the nations? Anne Judson, because she said yes, became the very first person to translate the book that we are reading now into Burmese. She was the first person to translate any part of the Bible anywhere into the Thai language when she translated Matthew's Gospel. Her husband was the first person to translate the New Testament into Burmese. The result of their ministry... 100 churches, 8,000 converts. Do we have any right to be angry? That's a monumental loss of perspective, isn't it? Question number two from the Lord. Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? And so the lesson continues. If Jonah is obsessed with his own comforts, then surprising grace means that God is actually going to take his comfort away. So God gave the vine, verse 6, but now, verse 7, God gives a worm to kill the vine, and verse 8, a scorching wind to blaze on Jonah's head. So we're back to sort of chapter 1, aren't we? God is going to work through Jonah's circumstances to challenge and to turn his heart back. So what, what was God aiming to achieve by sending the worm to chew the vine? I think he wants Jonah to see how self-centred and petty his concerns had become. And yet still Jonah doesn't appreciate God's intervention. Verse 9, he wanted to die, it says, and he says it would be better for me to die than to live. Someone has written, experience shows that self-centred people, and let me add self-centred churches, are the most unhappy people. What an unhappy person Jonah has become. Self-centred people are unhappy people. 
They constantly complain. They're never satisfied. Take no joy out of life. Give little joy to others and precious little glory to God. This author continues, Unless our hearts become consumed with causes and glories far greater than those of self, we waste our gifts and calling and sit miserably under the beating sun of the world's trials, wishing we could die. So aren't we able to spot the warning signs of what gives us joy and how we think about God should he take away any of our pleasures and comforts in life over against our concern for those who face eternity without him in hell. We need to watch for those signs, don't we? The contradictions in our hearts that say we've got this all the wrong way around, somehow, somewhere. When creature comforts trump all else, that's a worrying sign, isn't it? William Booth was the founder of the Salvation Army. We heard about him in the first talk when he wrote that little telegram. Can anyone remember? His others, his one-word message to the world, to the Salvation Army, others. Well, another story is told of him uh, when he was uh, found by his son, Bramwell, late at night, pacing up and down the floor of his study. And Bramwell put his head round the corner and said, uh, what are you thinking about? And William said, ah, Bramwell, I'm thinking about people's sin. What will they do with their sin? Basically, what, what was going on in William... William's heart was, he couldn't sleep because people were facing hell. That kept him awake at night. But do you know what? I, I couldn't get to sleep last night till after one o'clock. Why? Because of rugby. When was the last time I couldn't get to sleep until one o'clock? Because of the loss. The last question is for the man whose perspective needs to be radically altered. Should I not have concern for that great city? Why has God spent this chapter exposing Jonah's heart? Well, not to crush him, but to humble him. That's what God wants to do through this chapter to you as well. To think, what what am I about? What do I get angry about? What do I get joyful about? Where Where am I at here? What has God shown me about my heart? And at a time when Jonah is concerned about sunburn, God says to him, chapter 4, verse 11, Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hands from their lefts. Our book really ends where it began, but it ends with an open question, because we don't get an answer from Jonah, do we? You see, the question? it's unusual for a Bible book to end with a question. But it's as if it's kind of an open-ended statement that invites us to make a response. Do I care? Should I not have the compassion that God has? And Jonah said, no, I shouldn't have that compassion. In the beginning of chapter 1, he said, I'm going to go to Tarshish instead and lie on a beach in Spain. So he said, no, you shouldn't be compassionate, and I shouldn't be concerned either. And now at the end of chapter 4, God's asking this prophet of God who's still trying to work grace out for himself, he's asking him again should I not be concerned about 120,000 people which if my maths is right is about the same size as Oxford 
Yeah. Without, oh, sorry. Offended half of you. I'm not sure. Should I be concerned about that great city? Well, you ask. Will you ask God to give you a heart of compassion? What a mercy it is that God didn't send Jonah to save me. He might never have made it. What a mercy that God sent Jesus. For Jesus' heart was full of compassion. C.H. Virgin said, If you would sum up the whole character of Christ in reference to ourselves, that is, lost people, it might be gathered into one sentence. He was moved with compassion. Isn't that lovely? Spurgeon said, you want to know what Jesus was like here on earth. You could sum it up in this one sentence from the Bible. He was moved with compassion. J.C. Ryle, one time Bishop of Liverpool, notes the same thing when J.C. Ryle says, it is a curious and striking fact that of all the feelings experienced by our Lord here on earth, there is none so often mentioned as compassion. Nine times over, the Spirit has caused the word compassion to be written about Jesus in the Gospels. Nine times. The man of God, Jesus, gripped by the grace of God, loves all with a heart of compassion for the sake of God. So a closing thought for you as we draw to the end of our time. Measure your ambition for God by your compassion for others. Measure your ambition for God by your compassion for others. Not how many times you're at church, not how many books you've read, not even the money that you give, but your compassion for others. It's been said that perhaps the most important verse in the book of Jonah is chapter 4 and verse 12. Will you look at that verse with me? That's your verse, you see. Um, So... I'm not going to ask you to literally write the number 12, but that's because it's your answer that the Lord is seeking. What a privilege to have looked at this book together. The gospel to our city. That's the theme of Jonah. And it ought to be the theme of City Church Birmingham. And it ought to be the theme of Morden Road, Oxford. That's our theme, the gospel to our city. But the gospel within our hearts... Jonah has shown us is where that begins. And we don't know how it ended for Jonah. We don't know, do we? But given that we have the book of Jonah at all in the Bible, suggests to me it probably ended well, I think, because there was no one else who could have written the book of Jonah other than Jonah. Yeah? Because he was on his own for most of the time, or in the belly of a fish, and so on. So either Jonah wrote it, or he told his story to others who then wrote it down, of how he learned grace the hard way. It couldn't have been written without him, well, other than by some kind of sovereign miracle. He must have told the story to his friends. Sinclair Ferguson writes this. He says, This book carries no conclusion because it summons us to write the final paragraph. It remains unfinished in order that we may provide our own conclusion to its message. For you are Jonah, and I am Jonah. We recognise ourselves in the story in this man's life. We stand together in need of the mercy of God to enable us from this day on 
to be obedient to his commands and to live to the praise of his glorious grace. And what a difference you could make to your city and to the world if you too can learn to serve God with hearts full of compassion, surprised and amazed by God's grace. Let's pray. You are Jonah, and I am Jonah. Thank you, Lord, by your Spirit, for exposing the motives of our hearts this morning. That's a very painful thing. And at times we've found it uncomfortable to be reminded that we find it so much easier to be concerned for our pleasures, like Jonah and his, his vine then we are concerned for the lost. And we ask and pray that you would give us the heart of Jesus, that of compassion, that we might be those who delight to know you and to love you, and yet to speak and to live for you in ways that may require of us extraordinary courage and sacrifice, but that will result in eternal glory, and we pray and dare to pray the saving of many lives. Amen.